Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> Nice one. So, um, Rob, thanks for joining me. No, thanks for having me. Pleased to be on. Um, so, tell me a bit about yourself. So, we, we're obviously going to discuss some paramedic RSI um, and airway stuff in general. But um, before we do, maybe you like to introduce yourself a little bit and tell me a bit about your background. Yeah, no worries. So, uh, my name's Rob. Uh, I'm on Twitter. It's Ambophone. Um, you can find me there usually twittering away about nothing much in particular. Um, I'm an intensive care paramedic, what we call a MICA paramedic mobile intensive care ambulance paramedic in Victoria, Australia. Um, it's a role I've been in for about 16 years. So I've been a paramedic about 23, 24 years in intensive care for the last 16 or so. Uh, my substantive role is as a uh, micro intensive care paramedic educator, um, and I'm currently filling a role as a clinical support officer, which is a senior intensive care paramedic who uh, has a lot of input into um, the clinical performance, education, uh, clinical support, obviously, as the name suggests, and we also run the clinical desk, so we're the point of contact. Uh, for infield paramedics um, and the liaison point between other health services. So what, what kind of got you do, into the intensive care stuff? So is there, so like in the UK, we've got a few different avenues in terms of specialising, generally critical care or um, urgent emergency care, although there are other kind of roles developing. So is that, are there options you have in where you work or what, what kind of led you to the critical care route? Yeah, so basically most of, certainly Victoria and a lot of Australia or Australasia for that matter, have tiered systems. Um, some of them are two tiers, some of them are more. So in Victoria, we run a two-tiered system. We have the, the bulk of our workforce who are called advanced life support paramedics. Um, so they're all degree qualified um, for entering the job. Uh, so undergraduate degree in paramedicine or health science or something similar. 
Um, and then there are sort of multiple avenues you can go once you're an ALS paramedic. Um, there's management pathways and there's education pathways and so forth. Um, but we have a two-tiered system. So one of the pathways is the intensive care or micro side of things. Um, and the idea being uh, similar to a lot of jurisdictions is there's a smaller number of hopefully highly trained and, and experienced paramedics to provide support for the uh, critically ill or injured. Yeah, no. Which may or may not work depending on how busy we are. <laughs> We'll talk about more about that in a second, I guess. But um, so, what when when you specialise? What so you, you mentioned that the ALS parents are degree trained, um, which is again similar to the UK. But what um, what kind of further training do you do for the for the micro role? Yeah, so it's another it's a postgraduate diploma um, with the option of uh, sort of rounding out to a, a master's um, with just a couple more papers. Um, so essentially, the process is uh, so for a civilian to become a, a paramedic or a microparamedic, you do your three year undergraduate, and then you're employed if you're lucky enough to be employed. Um, you are employed as a graduate paramedic, which takes another twelve months. And there are um, this formal education, direct supervision, hurdles to, to pass and so forth. After that, you are qualified but uh, considered a junior advanced life support paramedic. So you can't work with students, for example, graduates. No. Um, and generally speaking, you won't be rostered at the same level. You'll still be rostered with someone senior. Um, so not direct supervision, but still recognising that you're finding your feet. So once you've got through all that, so that's um, about five years. Uh, once you've got through all that, you have the opportunity to become an intensive care paramedic. Um, usually people will leave it a bit longer than that just to make sure they you know, get the experience and um, work out what it is they need to do. So once you decide that you want to be a, a paramedic, uh, assuming again you're successful, there's another 12 months of training. Uh, so a postgraduate uh, a diploma, which is currently offered through Monash University in Victoria. Uh, and then another 12 months after that of direct supervision, uh, after which time you are a qualified microparamedic. However, uh, a progress to our conversation today, you're not authorised to um, RSI on your own at that point. There's another uh, six to 12 months, depending on how things go, before you can actually independently RSI. So it's a reasonably long uh, sort of pathway to follow, um, but... If we're going to be doing things like RSI, I think that's reasonable. Yeah, no, fair enough. And it's, it's surprisingly similar, actually. Well, I don't know if it's surprising because I'm sure the senior people in all like, the ambulance services talk to each other, but our system is very similar. So in the UK, um, I don't know how much you know, but basically uh, they, uh, since I think a couple of years ago, the uh, our registering body, um, made a degree entry mandatory and so um, for the last few years certainly it's a, again a, a degree trained profession and then up with three years experience in most services uh, you can apply for a specialist role and then again it's different depending where you go in the country um, but uh, the critical care role as we call it critical care paramedics is similar so generally two to three years depending whether you do the master's top up or not um, and so given that I wonder um, so we, we don't do paramedic RSI in the UK, but in terms of other interventions, what is your kind of scope of practice as a, 
as an intensive care paramedic? Yeah, so pretty pretty bog standard, I would imagine, um, across uh, certainly UK and Australasian and probably Canadian, I would say. Um, definitely the US is a bit different for a lot of reasons. Um, but it's the, the sort of uh, bread and butter stuff like cardiac arrest management, intubation without RSI, obviously, uh, antiarrhythmics, pressors, uh, you know, vasopressors, inotropes, uh, cardioversion, thoracostomies, those sorts of things. Um, so the advanced life support skill set is actually pretty good in Victoria. Um, IV cannulation, IV pain relief uh, with fentanyl morphine or ketamine uh, under consultation. Um, intranasal fentanyl, uh, midazolam for seizures and agitation, carry, ALS paramedics carry drapiridol, um, ketamine for agitation, and, and all the usual sort of cardiac drugs as well, GTNs and aspirin and so forth. Um, depending on where we work in Victoria, so if we're in a rural area, we also have thrombolysis. Um, so for intensive care paramedics, that's thrombolysis sort of off their own bat. Um, for advanced life support paramedics, it's under consultation with a cardiologist. So we've got a reasonably good scope of practice. Uh, there's always more stuff I want, um, but uh, generally speaking, I think we can cover most things pretty well. Yeah, nice. As you say, it's, it sounds re relatively similar. I think the so our version of ALS paramedics don't have quite the scope of practice. So the UK, I think, are uh, generally speaking, a lot more careful with sedation and analgesia, to the, often to the detriment of, of um, some patient groups. So things like paediatric pain relief, we don't have a lot of options for. Um, and paramedics, and not non-specialist paramedics, generally don't have ketamine or medaz, um, certainly not can't sedate agitated patients and again it kind of limits you in terms of analgesia but then I guess geographically we're normally within half an hour of a hospital um which I guess makes quite a difference yeah it's certainly um geography and logistics makes a huge difference so there are um restrictions um on ALS practice as well. So if, for example, uh, uh, an ALS paramedic is going to use ketamine to sedate a patient, it's a mandatory request for intensive care backup. Um, likewise, they do carry a lot of options for analgesia, but it's only for adult, uh, which for our purposes in that realm is sort of above 12 years of age, where it's you know yeah. essentially physiologically adult, easy to get cannulation and, and so forth. Um, so for anything younger than that, again, if you want analgesia outside of intranasal fentanyl, for example, uh, which we can give to any, any paramedic can give to any age, uh, intensive care are, are required for that sort of thing. So the, I think the scope is a good one in terms of lots of options with some sort of safety netting in place around the how and when and what support you get if you're going down a particular pathway. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Um, and so, obviously, we're going to talk about paramedic RSI um, is, the, is the topic for today. So is that something that's always been in the skill set of uh, yourself as like an intensive care paramedic, or is that something that's been brought in recently? How long have you guys been doing that? Um, it still feels kind of new sometimes, although we've been doing it just over 20 years now. Um, 
so it's a very well-established part of uh, intensive care practice here. Um, so we ran trials um, about 20 years or just over 20 years ago, uh, which probably many of your listeners will be familiar with the Bernard uh, pre-hospital RSI trial, which is one of the few that showed uh, potential benefit to pre-hospital RSI and traumatic brain injury. Uh, there's been criticisms of that study in terms of uh, who was included and excluded, uh, but even the most sort of pessimistic read of that uh, Bernard trial with the early deaths in the uh, paramedic arm would suggest that at the very least we are doing no harm um, with RSI. Is this, so if we can safely manage a patient. I think I um, read the paper. Is this um, uh, about like RSI and traumatic brain injury? Generally? Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yep, yep. So Stephen Bernard was our medical director. We now have a, a, a Stephen's retired, um, Dr. Bernard's retired, and we have um, David Anderson, who's an ex-paramedic sure. um, and currently an intensivist and our medical director. But um, Dr. Bernard was instrumental in sort of pushing pre-hospital RSI in terms of a uh, systematic researched and safe approach as opposed to the sort of ad hoc approach that had been previously operated and some ways is still operated in some jurisdictions around the world. So he was yeah. the sort of um, the impetus behind that. Um, and we we certainly demonstrated a, so at the very least that pre-hospital RSI by paramedics in traumatic brain injury was safe. Yeah, and so what, what was the, um, I mean, I'll, I'll stick the paper in the show notes because I think it'll, it'll be interesting for listeners, but what was the, um, the you know, what kind of initiated that as an intervention? What made people think that that was necessary for pre, for paramedics, certainly out of hospital? Yeah, so um, trauma in Victoria is, um, has always been and, and continues to be, um, largely road trauma. Um, we don't tend to have shootings, stabbings. I mean, we have all of those things, obviously. But the bulk of our, our um, trauma was road trauma, and it came with a fairly heavy burden of traumatic brain injury. And so what we were finding was, you know, intubation has essentially always been part of the skill set of microparamedics. And paramedics were starting to drive the sort of push towards needing RSI. So we had the ability to sedate to intubate patients. So back in the bad old days, it was um, morphine and diazepam and a strong left arm. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was paramedics, particularly some of our HEMS paramedics, but also some of our ground-based paramedics who recognised that that was really suboptimal mm. for our patients. Um, and so there was sort of a push from the paramedic side of things to improve things. And we we're fortunate enough with Steve Bernard, our medical director, who was open to that conversation with paramedics and, and decided to go ahead with it. Um, and I think certainly the difference, even if it's not um, quote unquote beneficial in terms of improved mortality, if it's not harmful, the difference between a coughing, gagging, bucking, spewing, agitated, head injured patient in the back of an ambulance and someone 
calmly and quietly, safely intubated and transported is is night and day. And I would certainly never want to go back to not having RSI. Yeah, right. And has there been, there's obviously that kind of pivotal study that you mentioned, but has there been much um, research into, because it seems like, as you say, the anecdotally, it seems like there's definite benefits, even if it doesn't, you know, if obviously you need quite significant numbers to prove a significant mortality benefit and things, but there's all those kind of soft factors that I think are really beneficial in terms of, as you say, a, a tubed, ventilated patient on handover, um, safer transfer, easier for the crew to recognise deterioration. I mean, there's there's so many potential benefits. It seems, um, it seems like the if if the trials were done, the evidence would be strongly in favour. Although I'm sure we're both biased in that regard. Yeah, look, I, I think um, I think the best that can be said is that done well, pre-hospital RSI is safe. Um, and I firmly believe that if that is the case, so if an organisation and paramedics are able to demonstrate that they are able to safely intubate a patient with RSI without desaturation and hypoxia and, and hypertension and hypercapnia and all those elements that we know negatively impact brain injured patients, if we can safely do that, then uh, I think it behooves us to do it for the betterment of our patients. So are we going to, you know, is it a matter of living or dying? Perhaps not. But likewise, you know, if you're talking about ICP and managing that, the patient who's, uh, you know, fighting and, and struggling and spewing is, is not going to be doing their ICP any good either, mm. let alone anything else. And I think one of the issues that's arisen when you start looking at some of the papers from around the world the issue is probably not paramedic RSI. Um, the issue is RSI done well or RSI done poorly. Um, so a lot of the studies, particularly out of the States, so Henry Wang is a reasonably uh, prolific author, Dr. Wang. Um, and yes, yeah, yeah. yep. Um, he, you know, there's there's a narrative that constantly comes out of our paramedics shouldn't be RSI. And then you look at the data and go, well, you're, you're dealing with a cohort of paramedics who have a 50% success rate at intubation. Um, no, they shouldn't be RSI. Um, that doesn't mean that pre-hospital paramedic RSI is, is bad. It just means that people who are doing it badly shouldn't be doing it. Um, yeah. So... The, the patient doesn't care who does it. Yeah. And this is, this is an interesting thing. So a few colleagues and I wrote a paper recently where we, um, so we, what we realised as, as a team is we don't really have, the, or we didn't have the data on uh, success of intubation for specialist paramedics like in our programme. And, um, and so we, we did a retrospective review on that. And in doing that we looked at some of that literature so the part child as you say from uh, the usa we looked at that, that paper that you mentioned um from uh, dr bernard um and so london ambulance service have published some data as well to show you things like first pass success essentially was our was our primary outcome and what, what i found was interesting was that um yes the uh success rate in some of those in, in that part trial was poor um, but the system in 
the USA, as, as I'm sure you know, like in, in the States, in different states, there's different varying levels of education. And what we found was a, a kind of correlation. Um, in that, as we've mentioned, your system in Victoria and the system in the UK is very similar in terms of the training and education. And that seems to come out in the data as well, that the first pass success rates are similar, kind of 90, 95 plus percent. Um, and systems where the training is lesser um, or the education uh, uh, journey is shorter, the the first pass success is lower, which you kind of, that's not surprising. And I think what, what we took from that, and as you're saying, is it's not a, it doesn't really matter if you're a paramedic or a doctor or a nurse or who you are, it's about the operator, the amount of education and the experience and exposure, isn't it? Um, and so for me, the conversation is, although we're talking about paramedic RSI, I guess the conversation is less about, or I think the conversation should be less about, should be less about paramedic versus doctor RSI and more about operator experience RSI, I guess. Yeah, look, I, I absolutely agree. Um, I don't think it matters. And, and when we look at some of, um, so uh, Victoria doesn't run doctors um, in any primary setting. So we have adult retrieval Victoria, which is physician led uh, for retrieval um, into hospital retrieval, but we don't have doctors on our primaries, either ground or air. Yeah. Um, however, when we look at some of the other states in Victoria, so uh, New South Wales, for example, uh, with Sydney Hems in particular, um, they run a mixed model of, of physician and paramedic, and it's not really a matter of um, who's who. Um, either the paramedic or the physician can intubate and does intubate. Likewise, South Australia's uh, MedStar um, run a retrieval practitioner model where it doesn't matter whether you're a nurse, a paramedic, a physician, it's your, your retrieval practitioner, and the crew mix is determined based on what job is mm. and what's needed. And likewise, intubation isn't solely the domain of one of those specialties. And I think that's the sort of enlightened way to go about it. Um, RSI is, is very much not about uh, what applet you wear or uh, what letters are after your name. It is about, as you say, education, um, but it's also about a system. Um, and it's uh, the, the system needs to support whoever is RSI with strong oversight, quality assurance, quality improvement, or, and so on and so forth. And, and if an organisation... Uh, is not willing or able to do that, they probably have no place in RSI, whether it's physicians, nurses, doctors, anyone. You know, and I think... I think Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Fair. Um, which kind of leads me on to the question of, um, of clinical governance, which is obviously a big part of that quality audit and, and quality improvement. So, so we, in, in our role, we, we have kind of regular clinical governance sessions and we talk about, um, you know, sedation jobs or complex jobs. Presumably that's something um, that is mandatory with RSI. So is that, does that play a big part in it? What are the kind of quality audit um, factors are there for you? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a major part of the process. And I don't think we, I mean, we wouldn't be where we are today without a strong audit process and a strong quality assurance process. Um, so we have a number of um, clinical KPIs um, and what we call limit occurrence screening jobs. So any job that involves intubation, whether it's RSI or cold tubing, um, any job that uh, involves front of neck access, um, thoracostomy, sedation for agitation, cardioversion, um, STEMI cases, there's a, there's a whole raft of cases that are reviewed at multiple levels throughout the organisation. So in terms of RSI, um, every case is obviously documented, all the data off our monitor, um, so all our SBO2 and entitled and ECG and BPs and so forth is sent to the cloud so that can be retrieved and reviewed. Um, and it's then reviewed at multiple levels. So the first port of call is at a station level or branch level where a paramedic educator or team manager will review the case. And it's reviewed against a sort of set of criteria. So how long did the procedure take, first pass success, um, desaturation, so on and so forth, all the sort of things you'd expect to be associated with clinical governance around RSI. Um, it's that is all entered into a database um, and the cases are all then reviewed further up as well. We have uh, limited occurrence screening sort of uh, committees. We have critical incident committees who look at um, any of those sorts of things where things haven't gone well. Um, we have, you know, quite a number of people who look at every single case um, and it's not just you know uh, what were the numbers like what were the sets like it's uh, also around decision making was it a um, what was your rationale for intubating this patient um, you know was it reasonable was it unreasonable we've recently um, overhauled our, our guidelines so we used to have a very a rigid set of criteria based on pathology. Um, so if traumatic brain injury with RSI with certain cocktail drugs and if non-traumatic brain injury, strokes, bleeds, we'd do something else and so on and so forth. And uh, four or five years, I suppose, ago, we, we, we really overhauled everything and made it about the main reasons we actually intubate protection of the airway, oxygenation, ventilation, expected clinical course or humane reasons, mm -hmm. took out all the extraneous stuff. So there's a lot more emphasis now on the actual decision-making as opposed to 
condition X, intubation, condition Y, no intubation. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I guess the the, the question, so in, in the UK, um, we have, because you, you mentioned the, the different systems that operate in Victoria and, and why maybe there's a place for paramedic RSI where there's no out-of-hospital doctor-led service. So in the UK, we have um, air ambulance coverage across the country, and obviously it's quite small, so the coverage is easier or response times are much easier. And so um, things like airway management for traumatic brain injury and, and those clinical indications you mentioned are predominantly the role of air ambulance services. And there's no real, because of that, there's no real need for anyone else to deliver that. Potentially arguable, but I think that's the, the kind of stance. Um, what, what I found in practice is yeah. we go to, as, as paramedics, we go to a lot of cardiac arrest, medical cardiac arrest. And um, there's a there's a kind of de-emphasis on intubation in recent years, given the uh, popularity of the eye gel, the effectiveness and ease of use of the eye gel. And so a lot of services are removing paramedic intubation, actually, for, for non-specialists. Um, and so most cardiac arrests we go to now, they are resuscitated with a supraglottic airway. Um, and then they ROSC, if they ROSC, without um, a tube. Uh, and then you're kind of in the situation where the patient really needs to be intubated, but there's a, a there's going to be a time delay for an air ambulance service to get to you or a time delay to get to hospital. And so the position we're often in is actually yeah. that if, if paramedic or specialist paramedic RSI were appropriate in the UK, in my opinion, that would be for a post-ROSC patient rather than a head, head injured patient, as we've discussed. So is that... Is that something, I mean, the, in terms of the patients that you're seeing, are they generally uh, trauma, as you mentioned, or do you see a, a number of post-ROS patients as well? What's your experience there? No, so the, the vast majority of um, RSIs we undertake now are not in trauma cases. Um, so I think stroke or, uh, you know, uh, neurological event is, is the f uh, foremost um reason people are getting intubated uh, but post-ROSC overdoses hangings hypothermia drownings there's there's a raft of things and the actual traumatic brain injury although it was the sort of genesis of 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 pre-hospital RSI for us is actually the the sort of one of the smallest slices of the pie of of what we intubate and I think one of the one of the good things is that we've gained our experience and now we can use RSI in a lot wider cohort of people because we know we can do it safely and therefore, the, you know, again, the, the hypoxic post-overdose who doesn't wake up and thrashes around, we can make them safe, we can make us safe, we can maximise their oxygenation, improve their ventilation, we can do all the things we need to do because we know we can do it safely. Um, and we know we can do it effectively. We don't have outcome data for that. Um, I'm not convinced that we need outcome data for that unless we were thought to be harming people. Um, I mean, clearly we need outcome data, but I don't think that needs a study per se to say you know, your you know, GCS of six agitated hypoxic post-hanging or so whatever shouldn't get intubated that's just nonsensical of course they need intubated and managed but only if it's done safely 
So yeah, we actually, uh, and the arrest thing is interesting. We've had a similar de-emphasis of intra-arrest uh, intubation and in, in the vast majority of our cases are managed with an eye gel. Um, so our ALS paramedics can insert eye gels and gastric tubes down the eye gel as well. So that's usually their, usually their first, it's the first port of call. Um, and then we tend to RSI post-arrest uh, depending on the circumstance. We can still elect to intubate during the arrest. Um, I personally uh, quite frequently do, um, but only if it's possible without any interruption to CPR or get in the way of any of the things that actually matter. Um, quite happy to have a look and pop a tube in if it's possible, and if it's not, go back to LMA and carry on. Yeah, and I think that's that's the kind of situation we find ourselves in, where where post rosc so it's a bit of a strange one for us. So post rosc RSI, we don't have that ability. We we don't do um, any sort of drug assisted airway management. Um, but if we have a rosc patient who is intubated intra arrest, um, then there's a lot more we can do in terms of post rosc care. So we can paralyze um, sedation package, and obviously that improves or makes ventilation strategies a bit easier. Um, and so what anecdotally you find is that you, the, although clinically intubation is maybe as an indicated intra-arrest, kind of thinking forward to the ROSC phase, a lot of people will try and intubate or, you know, a lot of specialist paramedics will try and intubate intra-arrest. And that just leads to, you know, you kind of, you, if you can safely do it, that's fine. And we're probably getting quite good at doing that, I would imagine, just from the exposure, but it does um potentially take away or it takes up some of your bandwidth for managing the cardiac arrest doesn't it and it's it's okay if it's if it's a relatively um simple um cardiac arrest in terms of the management and you have a number of paramedics who can um, provide clinical interventions but often we work with um uh, non-paramedic crews and uh, very newly qualified crews and so there's quite a burden of clinical intervention um and then you just find you kind of get saturated with tasks and um, and it makes the management more complicated, um, which is kind of an interesting point to reflect on, I think. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's dead right. And uh, so certainly in metropolitan Melbourne where I work, so I work in the western suburbs um, of, of Melbourne, it's large, populous and, and not as well-resourced as the wealthy parts of the, of the city, but um, relatively well-resourced. So we have at a cardiac arrest, for example, we will have uh, a sort of baseline resourcing of two advanced life support paramedics, um, two micro paramedics, so that's either on a, on a truck um, or two single responders, um, and three to four firefighters to do the the heavy lifting on the CPR for us. Yeah. Um, so that makes the, the running of a normal cardiac arrest pretty easy when we have that degree of resourcing. But I, um, you, you, you raise a very valid point. And if fiddling around with an airway is taking away from things that actually matter and, and, and bandwidth, I don't think it's reasonable to do that. Um, and, and if it interrupts CPR, it's absolutely unreasonable to do it. Yeah, of course, yeah. And so, um, in terms of so, so you managed you managed mentioned obviously the quality audit and, and um, monitoring. How how are you, you know, how are you measuring kind of safety in terms of RSI? Because I think 
um, in, in the literature about airway management and intubation in general, there's a lot of talk about first pass success. Um, but I think it obviously gets more complicated with drug assisted airway and, and um, RSI airway management because there is, I, I, I would say, you know, first pass success, a, a high first pass success is, is very important. But there's obviously other factors. You mentioned desaturation, um, hypotension, but they're these kind of drug associated factors. Do you um have you do you see I don't know, drug reactions, um, kind of a negative adverse effects and, and how do you monitor keep an eye on that? Yeah, so we, we definitely monitor all of that. So so first pass success is important and unnecessary, but by no means measure of um, success of an RSI program or an intubation program. Uh, it's the first step and one we all need to get to grips with, um, but it's by no means um, adequate in and of itself to measure how well we're doing. So we also um, measure all of our physiological parameters that we can, so entitled SpO2, heart rate, blood pressure. Um, throughout the procedure and all that data is uploaded so we're currently using Zoll monitors and they upload to a cloud um, and all of that data is reviewed every time we we do a case um, and it's fascinating to see uh, real-time sort of playback of a case and, and what you thought took forever took a few seconds and, and vice versa. Um, and it's a really powerful learning tool. Um, it's also forms part of our audit. So desaturation, hypotension, we measure higher sets or sets immediately preceding the um, intubation um, and sets immediately afterwards. We have, um, uh, we look at the bundle of care post-intubation, so ensuring the patient's adequately analgized and sedated, um, making sure that there's no signs of under-sedation, ongoing paralysis should it be required, uh, ventilation settings. So we've, we're sort of moving beyond now as, as our system's matured and uh, we've matured alongside it. We're, we're moving a bit away from the sort of blunt measure of first-pass success, still very important, still very proud of it um, and, and we're looking more at the sort of totality of the job. Um, time is one of the, the, the issues we continue to have. Um, we've noticed in recent years and uh, talking to medical colleagues uh, around Victoria, we're not alone in this, but uh, a, an RSI from, from go to woe is taking longer than it used to. Um, and, and sometimes time can get away on crews and blow out to perhaps unreasonable uh, lengths because I don't think it matters how well you do your job. If it's done sitting on scene without moving towards definitive care in a reasonable time frame, we're probably not doing anyone any favours. So there's always that balance in pre-hospital care of time spent on scene to stay and stabilise versus transport. I, I don't like the term stay and play. We're not playing. We, we need to do what is required to make our patient um, at least safe, if not better. 
Um, but if things take too long, then we're probably doing our patients a disservice. So that's something we are grappling with at the moment is, is how long is too long and what can we do to make it um, quicker, but safe. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 